Hello, I'm Alice Murray, the editor of The Drawdown, and here with me is Talia Maziri, editor of Real Deals. Welcome to the Private Equity Editors podcast. Um, so let's jump in with the key developments that we've um, discovered over the past week or so. Talia, what's been most interesting, the most interesting finding you've come across this week? Thanks, Alice. Um, so as part of our discussions around value preservation with GPs, there has been a considerable amount of talk around um, the movement of supply chains away from China and into the West. Um, so we recently had a really interesting comment piece from Rami Cassis from he's the CEO of Parabellum Investments, and he highlighted this kind of building uh, notion and building movement um, that in the post-COVID world, there is likely to be that companies and organisations will seek to secure their supply chains and bring outsourced goods and services closer to home. Um, and so there'll be this shift to this idea of near sourcing. Um, he's also noted that there will be calls from consumers for authentication and proof of near source products. And so this also led to a growth in product serialization tracking software um, so again, this is something that we'll see a considerable growth, he predicts, um, and also an, a type of business that many private equity um, firms, I'm sure, will be eager to kind of get their hands on. Um, ultimately, though, what kind of Cassis predictable that will come from this crisis is the increased pressure on vendors and GPs from both consumers and LPs for ethic ethically sourced products. Um, so companies are likely to respond by investing further into these software solutions um, to deliver that, that confidence and protection at the individual product level. Fantastic. Yeah, that is that is incredibly interesting um, and definitely kind of compounds some of the thinking that have been bubbling up around um, ESG. Mm. Uh, where supply chains tend to be kind of one of the weaker areas in terms of really understanding um, how a product has come to life. And so, yeah, anything that supports tracking and data collection around that journey um, will be of huge value to any company and, and then, I guess, then their GP and then their LP. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And what's been um, interesting finding for you this week? Well, it actually is is not too dissimilar to, to what you're talking about. And um, mm. it's just looking more broadly at private equity's use of data and data science. Okay. Uh, yeah, so while private equity is obviously no stranger to data, um, it seems that the industry is in varying stages of how it harnesses and uses data, whether that be for deal sourcing, execution, portfolio monitoring, um, and ESG reporting. Um, but as an industry, personal relationships and networks have always kind of taken the front seat until now. So over the past two months, we've all become far more data savvy. Um, data is arguably driving our response and our reactions to, to the recent events. When we talk about flattening the curve and the rate of infection, are these are all very data heavy, data led initiatives. Um, couple that with a growing sensitivity to data around social distancing, private equity potentially finds itself undergoing quite a paradigm shift. Mm. But while it's been quite a struggle to really um, get robust data and really kind of um, harness data and use it within all the existing systems, 
Thankfully, data science has advanced so much in the past two years that there's now a plethora of systems and data providers that can be plugged into to cater for and to achieve data utopia. Um, so this is the real development that we're uncovering. Whereas several years ago, private equity houses set about kind of building their own data teams and employing very expensive mm. mathematical and science types. It's now possible to use a selection of third party data providers like the companies that you're alluding to mm. um, so that they can basically, yeah, just focus on what they do best, still doing and, and value creation. Definitely, definitely. And I think it will, I'm sure it's a relief for investors that that kind of those third party providers are out there and are able to provide that data and um, management for them. Um, but I think it's still um, coming up in discussions that we're having that there is still an organisational issue when it comes to data, as many um, managers are still kind of st holding on to their Excel spreadsheets and kind of keeping data on email chains where this really, really shouldn't be the case. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is very much a recurring, a recurring theme for us. Um, yeah, that kind of move away from Excel. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So now turning to what we've done. Um, this week, we've been publishing our mini series, which looks at various networking groups within private equity. Um, specifically, we looked at three roles, CFOs, HR and tech. Mm -hmm. um, and what we found is that for CFOs and FDs within private equity, they are definitely the best networked. There's lots of groups in and outside of private equity, lots of active knowledge sharing and support offered. Um, but then when kind of drilling down into these groups, we found that actually the supports offered can only go so far. Given that CFOs deal with very complex and unique structures, it's mm. rare that their network and peers can really provide them with specific and technical advice. Yeah. On the other hand, when we spoke to uh, members of HR networks, particularly in private equity, they seem to be hugely supportive and have been of huge importance over the past months in terms of getting to grips with new working conditions and impacts on things like mental health. Um, and then finally, looking at tech professionals within PE. Um, well, unfortunately, there's very little in the way of networks simply because these roles remain fairly rare. Um, and so that's where we are hoping that we can help. Um, we're working on a bit of an initiative to bring together private equity tech professionals, um, obviously through this content. And also um, Real Deals is running some tech focused webinars over the next month. Uh, and so we will kind of hopefully bring people together through that. Definitely. Great little plug there. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, no, there's this really interesting kind of the, the difference between the, the, the different the three different groups that you've been looking at. Um, and that's really interesting you say that because we've actually been looking at similar aspects, but in the LP universe. Um, so looking at how LPs share, share knowledge and share expertise among their investors. Um, and we have actually been, just profiled a really interesting new LP called LTC, which is the London Technology Club. Mm. Um, and they're a global tech private equity investor, um, kind of LP looking, looking to make co-investments into funds. Um, but what's really interesting with them is that they kind of base their business model around uh, bringing together experts, 
technology experts as well as private equity and venture capital firms to all kind of share knowledge together in kind of big networking environments so yeah it's a really kind of positive to see there mm, okay yeah that is great okay and then um what about you what, what have you been publishing this week sure um so again kind of sticking with with the tech theme um what we've been looking at uh sorry we've been looking at more into cybersecurity and how it can impact reputation as well as protecting capital um because obviously in this current environment when we're working completely digitally now um data protection has been more more important more now more so than ever um, so we're publishing an article on this in our 14th of May edition of the magazine. Um, and this looking at whether private equity firms are doing enough to protect themselves. Um, so from the stats mentioned in the article, and I'll, I'll let you all have a read and not, not give away too much, but um, in the last month alone, three UK-based bio firms have all fallen victim to a cyber threat group dubbed uh, the Florentine Bank. Um, and only half the money was recovered uh, when intercepted, but again, a lot of a lot of the funds were lost there. Um, and also, a survey carried out by PwC revealed that 80% of private equity organisations have had a breach in the last 12 months. But again, really worrying there. But I think what's what's more concerning is the fact that of these 80%, the average time it took for them to kind of to detect the breach uh, was on average eight months. Um, so again, evident that kind of firms aren't really putting a focus, focus on their cybersecurity efforts here. Um, so having those necessary protections in place and renewing these on a regular basis really should be at the top of investors' to-do lists. Private, private in, um, previous incidents, sorry, have shown that cyber attacks do not result um, to not just result in a loss of funds, but can also have significant impact on company valuations and dampen reputations too. Um, so again, it's, it's just not just a one-time thing that firms, firms should be doing and kind of ticking off, um, but something they should be continually looking at and looking to renew. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, yeah, cyber something, cyber security is something that we've looked at, uh, you know, that very much speaks to the operational aspects of PE and, um, I guess one of the biggest conclusions we always reach whenever we look at it is that it's a cultural matter. Yeah. That um, obviously a lot of cyber breaches are typically because of human error. Mm -hmm. And so it's about kind of um, instilling almost quite a paranoid state of mind <laughs> um, yeah. to, yeah, to, to, to get through that. Exactly. Um, yeah. Never be too careful. Exactly. Yeah. Be alert. Um, cool. <laughs> In the words of Johnson. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah. And then stat attack. So um, moving on to our, our stats for this week. Mm -hmm. um, the one we've chosen, um, although it was released a couple of weeks ago, but I still think it's really interesting. Um, it's a stat from the Sunday Times, their latest annual profit track report. Mm -hmm. um, so this is something that obviously comes out every year um, and tracks annual profit growth of UK businesses, um, which have which have shown kind of the biggest growth in kind of small and mid market. Um, so of the seventy businesses that are listed, thirty three um, have had some form of private equity backing. 
so I think this is a really great indicator of how private equity can create value and assist with financial growth of businesses that it invests in. Um, and this is definitely something that we'll be looking more into, um, especially kind of on the angle in terms of how private equity can, can and does supercharge SMEs. Mm. Um, I guess the proof is in the pudding there. Yeah, yeah, that's a great finding. Um, and that profit track will only become more interesting over the next couple of months to see Definitely. yeah, whether or not how, how far these companies were protected. Mm-hmm. Cool, good stuff. All right. Um, turning to, to my most interesting stat of the week. Um, I've got some really wild findings. <laughs> um, no, not at all. I've, I'm going to pull some numbers from the Future of Fund Domiciliation Report. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually really, I find fund domiciles fascinating because uh, it links kind of the way in which money moves around the world and it, it relates to different tax structures, obviously. Um, but looking at some of the key findings there, it speaks to, um, I guess, the effectiveness of um, AIFM regulation. Mm. Um, and one of the findings was that for North American funds marketing into Europe, only 29% do so via a passport. Um, the majority, 40%, 47%, use private placement regimes, um, which just continued to grow in popularity. Um, whilst 24% said that they use reverse solicitation. Mm. Um, so I guess what we're seeing is how um, yeah, fund managers are still able to access institutional investors, but without kind of going through the rigorous standards of AFM. Yeah, really, really interesting. And kind of, it, it will be good, it will be kind of, interesting to, to track that as well and see how that changes over time and whether mm. there is more of a move away from um, this kind of passport method and moving to placement regimes and you know kind of that uh, reverse dissertation. Mm. Well <clears throat> there was the AFM what, what did go under review I think actually in 2018 but it's obviously just all kind of put on hold with Brexit and now this mm. um, but yes yeah, it just I guess yeah fun p just uh, yeah carries on regardless yeah okay well some really interesting things there lots of data lots of tech um lots of macro lots of micro um as always a real pleasure to speak to you talia thank you so much and you alice thank you and thank you for listening